But it's interesting. You, you, we talk about tropes and talk about things that, about the the writing craft, uh, and you know, like I look at things about the writing craft is this basically comes down to routines, you know. Um, that's I guess that's what I'm gonna talk about is about, about about like the writing routine, you know, because a lot of people find a difficult time of trying to write or in terms of their other jobs and things like that, or or just like or, you know, like. How do you guarantee that you have time to write every day? Because everyone's talking to you about, well, if you want to be a professional writer, well, then you got to write every day. And I don't necessarily agree that you have to actually be be writing every day because you could be thinking about what you're going to write. Um, and if you're you're very cautious about that, then that will constitute as writing because eventually you're going to put that down on paper. But the thing that I do, you know, is that like I get up every day. Um, and when I'm not working some other job or whatever it is, I'll spend an hour working on some prose work that I'm doing. Like, cause I'm writing a novel and I'm writing like a Roman clef at the same time. And there's just a couple of short stories that I'm just kicking around. So I'll do that for an hour just to, just to kind of get my head, um, just in the space of, of, of writing, you know, I mean, but the first thing I usually do is I usually read a, some sort of poetry, because you know, there's to f- get kickstarted, like into the creative mindset, and I usually find that poetry is a great way to do that, because that type of work is so specific and is so uh, unique. Um, but anyway, so I do that, and then I just write for like 25 minutes on the script, um, and I usually go back and read about four or five pages before I. Um, get to the point where I stopped and then I just keep just to just to get my head back to where I was mentally and then I just keep writing um and then you know I have a lot of these post-it notes that I have uh posted up on my computer to help me just kind of when I'm staring off into the sunset um I guess I'll read some of these now to you so you kind of know what I'm talking about so I have one that says you know what is the simple emotional journey I have one that says, why are you telling this story? Um, Another one says, always think specifics, always think transitions. I have that up there because, like, specifics, I think I picked it up from, like, Steven Soderbergh, who doesn't write that much. But it's one of those things where, yeah, there's an article I remember reading in the New York Times where he was interviewed and he was talking about all the president's men. That's where I got this. That's where I usually get a lot of these things, these interviews from people who talk about stuff. Um, and specifics is, you know, like how you make um, the work you do stand out. How do you paint the picture in people's minds? But when you, when you, it's all about specificity. Specificity in language that people speak. Uh, specificity in behavior. You know, if you can, can accurately write, if you can accurately write that down in the script, which you got to learn how to do, um, or just to talk about or, or specifics in action, so you, so you know what's happening. Transitions is important too. Transitions is you know it's one of the things that Soderbergh talked about. In, um, all the president's men, you know, is if you watch how they get out of every scene, how Alan J. Pacquiao gets out of every scene visually, but also kind of works on how you get out of the scene, um, like writing-wise, you know, because because transitions 
from scene to scene, from section to section, from moment to moment, or or, or from actually yeah, just moment to moment, or act to act, is very important for the flow of the story. So you should always be thinking about that, you know. And if you end a scene and you go, oh, I've got got out of it, you always got to say, did this get me out of it the best way to lead me into the next scene? Another thing I have is, uh, what is the emotional arc of the character? Um, just you know, because you because I mean, you all, you should always be thinking about that. Uh, that I have this scene, this card this has three questions on it. it. Says, is this scene dramatic? Ask yourself: one, who wants what? Two, what happens if he or she doesn't get it? And then three, uh, why now? I pulled this from this David Mamet thing, but that's um, important too. I've talked about that before. Uh, I have one that says, um, "What does this shot say?" How does it make you feel? I guess that's up from when I was working on this project with Hilliard, the, the web series. But that's kind of how you think about it, you know. But also that's part of what the language is when you're writing, is that every line has to mean something. I think that was on Paul Guillaume's, uh his MacBook, you know. Every line has to mean something. Um, and my last thing here is, just a few more, but I'll just read this last one. It says, what do you want the audience to feel in this scene? Um... And that's kind of like your litmus test on, did you make the scene work or not? Um, I guess there was something else someone talked about in terms of uh, examples of effective exposition in screenwriting. Like what scripts did that? And um, I mentioned it was on Twitter, and I said, you know, Seven does a great job in that. Andrew Kevin Walker is so fantastic in how he creates that stuff on the page. But in the movie, too, I mean, think about, like, you know, those scenes that those guys go to those crime scenes. And, and Somerset is talking about um, the crime and what's happening and all this kind of stuff. And it's, I mean, you're seeing all this stuff. So there's exposition, of, and it's, it's describing the crime. It's describing the, the foulness of the crime. But it's also, it's also moving everything forward because they're still trying to figure out the the crazy mind that, that did all those those crimes in Seven. So that's an example. Um, Science of the Lambs is another great example where they're just like rolling out so much exposition. I mean, that scene when Jodie Foster first goes to meet detect, um, Dr. Chilton, um, you know, he's in the office, and then she's, he's trying to hit on her, and then they, and he has to push him off. So there's that kind of like emotional tension there, but there's, you're, we're still like learning all this stuff about Lecter. And then they go down to the dungeon to prison to find Lecter. It's just down, down, down. It's just more just talk, talk, talk. But it's like a walking and talking thing. It's just seeing new stuff. And you know, and um, and you finally go and you meet Lecter. And then, and then even that scene with, with them is, although it is a, the first tete-a-tete between them, still a huge amount of exposition is rolled out in that scene about who Lecter is, where he's from, you know, stuff about, like, Clarice Starling. It's really fascinating. I think the movie The Martian is really good at that, too, because, you know, that movie is funny, even though it's not supposed to be, like, a comedy, but it has to be funny because of the situation that Mark Watney is in. And, you know, the, the... and he's doing things. He's doing science. Everyone is doing science to solve what's happening. And they got to explain the science to us, the audience. They don't need to explain it to the other people who are working in, who are the rocket scientists and shit like that, because they kind of know it. But they got to do it in a way where they're doing that to 
to make it palatable because they're making these life or death decisions when everything's on the line and why he's making decisions about like like how to live and what to do with the hab and all this kind of stuff you know to, to so he can just survive for the year and a half that he's on Mars alone and it's like that is interesting too about how I think his name is uh, Drew Goddard he wrote that script like how he's able to convert all that into action as well as like scenes that have tension going on between the two characters it's a really really smart script in that way I mean I, I was rereading it over the summer um just cause I I don't know why sometimes I just I just reread scripts to see what's going on um and then you know another movie I liked is um Hell or High Water which was a really, really good script, too. And that movie does a, does a lot. Where it's, you know, it's written by an actor who turns into a writer, and now he directs stuff, too. And he also wrote uh, Sicario in a movie two years ago called um, Wind River, which he directed. But the thing about that, the thing about it, like Hell or High Water is, is that he's able to explain all this about the problems that the country is facing with the banking crisis and how the banks steal people's homes and what these guys are doing and um, and he and he does all that in a very uh, simple but hidden way. So you're learning information as they're doing these robberies. And as you're learning about these two brothers and what they're doing and their internal battles and things like that, I don't know. It's, an, it's another script that I was rereading recently. It's very smart in terms of how um, that's executed. Uh, so those is my little bit about craft. Um, it's just one of those things where I think that you get a lot out of seeing how things are done on the page because. A lot of writing is successful writing is how you execute it on the page because people are reading off the screen and they're all trying to be distracted by everything else that's going on and you know so what are you doing to keep them motivated keep them captivated in your work and those scripts that I mentioned uh, particularly uh, Hell or High Water because um, I haven't read and Martian too but I haven't read Silence of the Lambs in a long time and same with Seven, not since probably 20 years since I read Seven. Um, but it's just so palatable. Like, he's such a great writer. Like, he like is so atmospheric in how he writes, but he's still economical in how he creates the atmosphere. And that's the beauty of his writing. And that's where people need to get to when they are writing. I mean, I was at a, um, a table read the other day, and it was pretty good the story but I was reading and listening to it and I was like oh he's got so much language in here that he doesn't need because he doesn't know to trust the camera to show a lot of things and the camera will show a lot of things so you so you just need to be writing the very bare minimum to get across the idea of action uh, but the bare, minute, the bare minimum doesn't need doesn't mean that it needs to be simple it just needs to be compressed and that's why I always talk about it's great to look at poetry because poetry is like the best version of that in, in like in English. Um, okay, so that uh, that's it for this bottle episode. We will be back next week on the Screenwriters Rant Room with uh, at least Hillary and myself, possibly um, Linnell, possibly Jeff, possibly Lisa. Hopefully, Lisa. Um, so there it is if you like these kind of bottle episodes you know please let us know 
um, you can uh, tweet about this or you can send uh, like an email I think the email is um, screenwritersrantroom at gmail you go to the to the uh, the website which is screenwritersrr.com there's a contact form in there where you can just let us know uh, also on uh, the website is the link to the Patreon, which we would love. Or since we're doing this through Anchor, then you could go through Anchor to um, subscribe, you know, and to support the show. I think it's like ninety nine cents a month or or forty or four ninety nine. There's two different tiers for that. Um, if that's not clear, uh, send us an email. You know, to screenwritersrentroom at gmail dot com. Or send us a tweet, and uh, either at you know, like I'm at unauthorized CBD, uh, or you can do like um, at screenwriters RR or at or at Hilliard Guess to let us know what you think about this uh, these kind of like interstitial formats that we're doing. Um, also, you know, we always talk about we're trying to go to Comic Con next year, so that's a big, big, big reason why we want the Patreon people to come in and just say, you know, support us for whatever it is. You know, it's you know, it can be five dollars a month, it can be ten dollars a month, it can be two dollars a month. You know, um, just let us know because um, I think that we'll have a. It'd be interesting to do like a live live show in front of a live audience. Um, so there's that. You can get our T-shirts on line either through the patreon um page particularly the patreon page but you also do it through the uh, the website um it, uh and i guess there'll be like a a tweet that we'll put out too and, I'll, and there'll also be show notes there'll be a link in the show notes we'll figure out how to get that to work so those links are all active um what's one of the reasons why we switched to anchor so we could do all that um I guess that's it. Uh, lots of movies to watch right now. Lots and lots of movies to watch. You know, Ford versus Ferrari, The Good Liar, uh, Motherless Brooklyn, um, The Irishman. Go see that in the theater. Do not see it on that on Netflix streaming channel. Go see it in the theater. And if you can see it in the theater because it's not around or it's, or it's actually dropping next week on the uh, platform. Uh, I guess to see it, but just see it because you know it's because Martin did something really fantastic with that movie. Um, this is, uh, there's other movies coming out too. You know, I, I keep talking about Parasite. See that um, there might be a couple other things that are, are streaming through. Um, I'm trying to think what else I want to see. I got the Rocket Man screener. I'm really interested in seeing that. Um, which I did miss in the, in the beginning of the year. Uh, there's a movie called um, Les Miserables. That's a French film about. It's not about. It's not the Victor Hugo thing. It's about a um, a cop from the countryside who comes to Paris and sees how difficult it is to be a cop in the big city. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Just, just this, this is the best time of year to see movies. This is the absolute best time of year to see movies. Um, there's, but I hate the fact that there's so many that come out in this like, you know, this six week period. But might be probably like fifty movies come out. But anyway, you know, go see some stuff. Go support the rant room. Um, and come back next week when the whole gang is here again. Uh, all right. Thank you very much. Bye bye. I'ma say what I feel. And I promise to keep it real. Welcome to the Red Room. So you wanna be a rapper?
rider Well you gotta be a rider Till your fears are diminishing The doubts are behind ya It's hard to grind And the business got me stressed In the rent room We let that shit up off our chest You know the street nerd Has got no time for no kata Sass in class Yes that's Mr. Bolakaja Never have to guess When you're listening to Hilliard He gon' bring more game Than a shark playing billiards It's all about the crap of screenwriting It's exciting when you turn an outline Into something enlightening Your pen and words Are like bullets in a gun Write what you feel Say what you want Welcome to the red room. I'ma say what I feel, and I promise to keep it real. Welcome to the red room. Till your fears are diminishing, the doubts are behind ya It's hard to grind and the business got me stressed in the rent room We let that shit up off our chest You know the street nerd has got no time for no kata Sass in class, yes that's Mr. Bolakaja Never have to guess when you're listening to Hilliard He gon' bring more game than a shark playing billiards It's all about the crap of screenwriting It's exciting when you turn an outline into something enlightening Your pen and words are like bullets in a gun Write what you feel, say what you want Welcome to the rent room Okay, so we're back with the Screenwriter's Rant Room, another bottle episode. Uh, Hilliard will be back after the holiday, and so will Lisa. And we'll have our little couple episodes before we get to the holiday finales. So what am I going to talk about this time? Um, Okay, a couple things. One, Adam Driver. Many of us know this guy from Star Wars. He plays Kylo Ren. I guess he was in that show called The Girls and stuff like that. And I couldn't understand why people were so into this guy. But now I know. I'm still not necessarily a fan for some other reasons, but I always like to reassess stuff that I'm thinking. And I say that because I saw this movie called uh, Marriage Story by Noah Baumbach, starring Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. And I was blown away by his performance because I think what people see in him and what they like about him, because he's got a bunch of movies out this year, uh, is that he's fearless. He's absolutely fearless. I think it's because he was a Marine and then he knows this is not going to kill him at all, whatever it is, the acting wise. And so he's honest as hell and he's vulnerable as hell. And he wears his heart upon his sleeve for Dawes to peck at, for those who love Shakespeare references. But it was interesting seeing him in that movie. And there's just some, and against someone like Scarlett Johansson, who I think a lot of people uh, don't necessarily give her the credit for the caliber of acting that she can do. You know, I think the issue with Scarlett is she gets in these films like Black Widow and that terrible, terrible uh, Ghost in the Shell and they overlook the work that she really does that's really, really strong scene work and really, really strong partner work. I mean, she did a movie a few years ago called um, Under the Skin or something like that, uh, and it was really, really interesting film um, just in terms of like what she did and the type of vulnerability and the type of behavior she exhibited playing this alien creature. And it's one of those things that you just have to really respect despite her beauty and the things that people kind of like look to her about when she was younger. Um, I kind of think that she got a lot of training 
in confidence when she worked with Woody Allen in a couple of films uh, about 10 years ago. So that's Marriage Story. You should see it. Uh, it's a great film. It's, it's just a, there's a scene at the end when Adam and Scarlett are like throwing knives at each other. I mean, like really throwing knives at each other, like fantastically performed. And, um, you know, that's not a scene that, that can work uh, unless both players are as... Uh, just as skilled as possible otherwise it would seem false it would seem funny it, you know it reminded me of the type of just personal damage that you can do to each other that you saw in um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf so what's next what else do I want to talk about oh I want to talk about where we're going with the movie industry you know, a lot of people can't afford to go to the films anymore. The theater experience is becoming like going to an opera or going to a Broadway play. And it's poised to become even worse right now. It's poised to become worse because Donald Trump and his fucking awful Justice Department, they are repealing the Paramount Decrees. And for those of you who don't know what the Paramount Decrees are, uh, back in like the mid-40s, the Justice Department sued Hollywood for the monopoly that they had in terms of in terms of like they would own the distribution, the production of films. So so they would own the theaters. And what they could do with that is is that they could block certain films from being in certain theaters. So if they you know happen to have monopoly of theaters in a town and say it was in, and, and say that that theater chain or that theater or just used theaters were owned by, say, Paramount, well, then they could keep all the 20th Century Fox and the Warner Brothers and the Columbia and MGM films out. And and, and, and that's what was done for a long time until they till this, this massive legislation came out and it went up against the Supreme Court. And uh, I believe the Supreme Court might be wrong with that, but it was a big case called, the, and it was, and it became called the Paramount Decrees. And essentially, it cut off the studios from owning um, the theaters. And what happened after that was there was a huge explosion of independent cinema and therefore independent films because that's how independent films could work. They could play in these smaller theaters in different cities in different countries. I'm sure if you grow up in a in a in a, a sizable metropolitan area, or even if you didn't, there was an independently owned theater in your town where they would show these midnight films and these films that came out of the 60s and 70s that made artists that made people you know. Big because they could take their film around and show it. I mean, like we just saw this movie um, Dolomite, and he did that. He took it to a theater. You know, his movie that he shot that the, the people didn't want to play. He took it to a theater and played it at midnight, and and that's how his he became big. And and there's a lot of filmmakers who did that, and and uh, from Russ Meyer to, to, to all these kind of people in in the 50s and 60s because the theaters changed and the the movie studios didn't own the theaters anymore. So the, and so now with the Paramount decrees being pulled back. That means they're going these theater, these movie companies, these media conglomerates now are going to own the theaters, and they're going to block the distribution of cinema. It's it's, it's going to kill all the the, the independent uh, theaters around town, be, or just not around town, but around the country, because they're not going to be able to get certain films that they want to see, and there's not enough money that they can make from all the indie films that play to sustain themselves you know because perhaps if you're an indie theater and you play like one big film you know like every quarter that's gonna 
cover the cost for you for the rest of the year so you can play the films that you want to do. And I think the big scary thing about this is, is Disney. Because Disney owns now Fox, and they, I think they said that last year with the five films, or this year they put out five films that that commanded like uh, I want to say like eighty percent of the uh, U.S. box office. So that's a huge amount of power and influence that they have. And if you look at and, and, and what's, what's going on also is is that Disney is pulling all of the Fox films that used to play around these little repertory theaters uh, around the U.S. and Canada. So, you know, there used to be like these midnight screenings of like Alien and Aliens and, you know, Star, you know, not Star Wars, but there's these huge number of films that are part of the Fox repertory theater, like all going back to the, the 40s and 50s, those films that people would play, and those are not, um, going to be able to be played anymore because Disney wants you to subscribe to their Disney Plus platform if if you want to watch those Fox films and if you want to watch the Disney films. And Disney has, has made it a, a big thing about not letting the films that they own just be available for public consumption. You know, because even when they put out films on, like, home video formats, it was just like this, this like, limited amount of of uh, discs would be printed up or VHS would be printed up or things like that. So, because of Disney's now such a strong might and such a strong power, I don't see how they're not going to take advantage of the fact that they can now own theaters. And the reason why they'll do that is is because one of the things that Netflix and that the Amazon has been doing to make themselves be seen as legitimate players in the film industry in terms of trying to get nominated for Oscars is they've had to go out and buy theaters so they can have have movies that they think are prestige films like Martin Scorsese's The Irishman or um, there's some films last year that came out like uh, Cold War and Amazon those movies were supposed to go to the streaming platform first but they wanted to get recognition um in the theater so they could get the Oscar nominations like the movie Roma too so they've been out buying theaters they've been buying small theater chains and stuff like that but what's going to happen when places like AMC are going to get bought by Disney because why wouldn't Disney buy them so they can control like all the money and therefore they're not splitting any of the money that they have to give to the theater owners you know it's whatever it is is half the you know it's 25% to half the, the box office take is split with the theater owners so now they're keeping all that money uh or they will, and perhaps this will change. Perhaps the Paramount thing uh, decrees will get reinstated if Trump gets voted out of office. Because I think there's like a sunset clause for this. But that's a big thing that I think that filmmakers should be very concerned with. And I say that because it's very difficult to get into the television game, and even though everybody wants to. Because that's where they see a lot of money and steady work and things like that. It's very hard to do. I mean, take for instance, you know, someone like Barry Jenkins, who is a film artist, but he had made a film that didn't do, you know, f phenomenally successful, I think like six or seven years before Moonlight. And then get this he had to use the script, he had to use his Oscar winning script for Moonlight. To get onto a TV show where he was the lowest level writer, he was a, become a staff writer. That's how difficult it can be to get onto a TV show. 
Um, and believe me, it's going to get harder because because all these streaming platforms are not going to survive, or they're just going to cut down on their production. There's going to be less and less like opportunities to work. And the thing about the movie businesses is that you could make a movie and get it out of the theater and make a name for yourself and you could express your art and express your viewpoint and 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 make your way in to making hollywood films or just becoming like an international celebrity and being able to make your movies that way through international financing but that can dry up if the if the independent theaters don't exist i mean these places in in los angeles like the new art and things i guess those are owned by landmark but i want to say that landmark is up for sale, or is that the Limway that's up for sale, the Limway chain? But 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 in, but in any event, it's going to get bought by Disney, or maybe by you know, uh, well, Fox is Disney now, so or it might get bought by Universal, or it could get bought by Warner Bros. because they have a lot of money too. But then it just cuts it cuts down the opportunity to show alternative viewpoints. You know, that's the one thing about making film art, particularly from like the mid '60s until maybe like the early 2000s, is that you could really make interesting work. And once things began to, like, you know, contract, which happened after the Great Recession, when there was less films being made that were were not based on, like, this pre-vetted IP, what happened to the film industry? We start seeing these movies that are... There's so many reboots and rehashes and sequels and stuff like that because the, the, the... the original voices got drowned out by the need to make all this money. And I don't see how that's going to change if... It's, it's actually just going to get worse, I think. If unless, unless Trump's Justice Department gets knocked out within the next, you know, whatever, next year, and this paramount decrees uh, are then reinstated. So then what else I want to talk about, because uh, this is maybe getting kind of long. I don't know, there was someone on Twitter who mentioned that they wanted to have us do an episode where we talked about um, um, inverting tropes. And I guess that's something that we should do. I guess it's something that we will do. But um, maybe it's something that we do with the whole gang. So it's Lisa and Hilliard and myself. And maybe we'll get Jeff Thorne to come in because he's really smart about things like that. Or maybe it could be uh, Paul Gio if he's back in town uh, for some time. 